Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart. And today you're listening to this on a day that most of our LCI team happens to be in Memphis. And we are talking about a very important topic at Freedom Fest. We are talking about nationalism and Christian nationalism and whether or not it's a threat and whether or not it's something that needs to be dealt with. And in preparation for that, in anticipation that we are going to be a key organization to talk about this, we've been interviewing a number of thoughtful Christians and leaders who take this seriously, biblically, and want to basically have an answer and engage in this in a very thoughtful manner. So I actually have somebody on with me today who I happen to know personally. His name is John Carlson, and he is the lead pastor of Forest Hills Mennonite Church in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. John discovered the Mennonite Church as a teenager and has served in pastoral ministry since 2010. He serves as the moderator of Mennonite Church USA and enjoys, on his spare time, distance running and photography. He's here to discuss with us a little bit about a class that he did at his church on the topic of Christian nationalism. Hey, John, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Doug. It's great to be here and hope that your time in Nashville is productive and meaningful for you all. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of a weird opening It's in some degree because we know we're recording this ahead of time, and yet I know that right. everybody listening to this right now, very likely we could be in a breakout session talking as somebody's listening to this. So this is kind of an interesting start, but I just happen to know when this episode is going to be released. So. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And it's one of those topics that's kind of in the zeitgeist, and I think part of the challenge as thinkers and leaders is to pay attention to that without being necessarily overreactive to what's being talked about so much around us. So there's a real interesting needle to thread here in terms of taking this seriously without going into what I think of as kind of like a full-blown panic unnecessarily. Yeah, I think that's really important to realize that the overreaction and not going into full-blown panic, those are really good terms to, to use there because I think that's just kind of where our politics are right now. It's like everybody's just apoplectic about the thing they don't like. And it's like, well, this is the most important issue of the day right now. Right. And to my more sort of progressive friends, I often try to give them a little concise history lesson because I, I grew up in some of this. I grew up in kind of the moral majority environment, yep. really strong kind of religious right leanings, a really strong sense that Christians needed to take government for God. And so much of that was rooted in fear. Like it was rooted in this sense that like if we don't do something, bad things are going to happen. And so when I talk with my progressive friends who sort of survey the landscape right now and look at January 6th or the Make America Great Again movement, and they start saying, if we don't do something, bad things are going to happen. I'm like, okay, friends, let's take a breath because that's exactly the kind of thinking that got us where we are right now. So let's not just repeat the cycle again, just in the opposite direction. Like, let's be really deliberative in how we think about this. What do you think the role of the fear plays in people's identifying things. It's like, if you think there's a wolf around every corner, then you're going to like see them everywhere, right? You're going to have a fear that there's fascism on the rise. And anybody who even smells a whiff of fascism from this person who's a Christian who says, hey, I think we need to take America back for God. You kind of attribute everything that goes along with that as like, oh, you're a threat. Yeah. And it's hard because fear is such an effective motivator, right? Like it's hardwired into our nervous system. Like the fastest the human body can react to anything 
is the startle reflex. When we hear an unexpected noise, it actually mm-hmm. travels faster than conscious thought, it travels faster than any other neuron system in our body. And so we are hardwired to be afraid. And yet again and again in scripture, we have these invitations, these exhortations, these encouragements as followers of Jesus to not allow that fear to dominate our decision-making, right? Like when Jesus tells his disciples over and over again, fear not, or do not be afraid, depending on your translation, he's not saying like sever that mechanism in your body. He's (laughs) saying, don't allow that to govern and dictate all the choices that you make. It is possible to be a deliberative, thoughtful person, even in a high stress environment. And it's doubly possible if we believe that God is present in this world with us, then we don't have to allow our fear of the worst case scenarios to control all of our decisions. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I want to get to why you had this class at your church pretty recently, but just so that people kind of know where your political background is, you can share whatever you feel comfortable with. Where are you in the like scheme of things? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, so I am maybe a little bit all over the map. And as a pastor, I really don't see it as my job to put my personal politics front and center. Like, I don't see it as my job to encourage people who are looking to me for sort of spiritual guidance, sort of biblical interpretation, encouragement to follow Jesus. I don't want to put my politics in the center of all of that. Like, I think that's bad. And so I actually work pretty hard to keep my personal political leanings kind of out of the pulpit, especially, but out of ministry in general. But in having this conversation at our church, and I can give you a little more backstory of how that came about, I thought it was only fair to be kind of transparent with people and say, this is where I'm coming at this from. So I think of myself in a lot of ways as a centrist, kind of the most hated creature in the political world today. <laughs> I probably am maybe a bit more... It's like the lukewarm person of the political... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm probably a bit more kind of like socially liberal, like kind of open to just kind of not wanting the government to interfere in people's personal decisions maybe a bit fiscally conservative, leaning in that direction, although I do have a fascination and curiosity with why the Nordic model seems, at least, to work as well as it does. I don't think it could work in a pluralistic society like ours, but I'm really fascinated by it. But then when it comes to my faith, my faith kind of infuses all of that, especially a Anabaptist interpretation of Christianity, kind of infuses all of that with a deep suspicion of centralized authority and a desire to distance myself from that. So a centrist with some anarchist leanings is how I describe myself. (laughs) Well, that probably overlaps enough with the libertarian way of looking at things, depending on how one might frame that. I don't know how familiar you are with our views, but there's about twice as many libertarian opinions as there are libertarians. So (laughs) take that for what it's worth. So tell us about the class. You said that that was an important thing to do. What was going on there? What was behind that? Yeah, so it actually came from a request from within the congregation. We still have an adult Christian education model. We do call them Sunday schools still. They, in, in other churches, might be groups that would be called like small groups or home groups or something like that. They actually do meet on Sunday mornings sort of before the worship service. And one of those groups had been having a lot of conversation about social engagement, social challenges. There's a strong current of social consciousness that runs through Anabaptism. So they were having some of these conversations, wrestling with it, And these questions of political engagement kept coming up in their context as they were having those conversations. And so one of their leaders reached out to me and said, hey, would you be open to just leading some conversation with our class for two or three weeks about Christian nationalism? We hear a lot about it in the news. It seems to crop up in our conversations about these other topics that aren't really exactly about it. But we don't feel personally that they as leaders didn't feel equipped to structure that conversation themselves. So they reached out to me. I was like, sure, that's great. You know, it's 15, 20 people, not a big deal. I can take three weeks out of my schedule to make that happen. 
And then in the planning process, apparently they talked to some friends in other contexts in the church who were like, hey, we'd love to join that. And so it snowballed and became uh, <laughs> open to anyone from the church who wanted to join and went from being, you know, planning for a conversation with 15 or 20 people to facilitating a group of, I don't know, 100 people or something like that talking through this. So it really came from a request from within the congregation. But as we were saying at the beginning, this really is in the zeitgeist. This is a thing that people are talking about. It's in the news. There are lots of books and blogs being written. There are podcasts like this one being recorded. It's something that's on people's minds that they want to think about. And so part of what I bring to this is a real concern for the well-being of the church. I don't know exactly how some of this will play out in broader society and sort of civic society and politics and government, but I'm really concerned about what I see as the corrosive impact of overly zealous political engagement on the well-being, the health, and the unity, especially, of the church. Mm. So as a pastor, it's important for me to be willing to engage and lean into that conversation. What are some of the bigger problems you see in even just having the discussion about Christian nationalism? Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest challenges is that even the language itself is contested and contestable. And because we are not in a time that is open to a lot of nuance or sensitivity, there's a lot of just reductionism, right? I liken it to, you know how when you're driving down the highway, anyone going slower than you is a moron and anyone going faster than you is an idiot? It kind of feels like that in our politics right now, that anyone to my left is a Marxist and anyone to my right is a Christian nationalist. And we don't have the patience to actually unpack and talk about what do we mean? How do people arrive at their political convictions? What are some of the good things that they're seeking to bring about through their political engagement? So one of the biggest challenges is just even using the phrase Christian nationalism can, for some people, close down conversation. So it's just, it's a really hard time to talk about things honestly right now. Do you think it closes down the conversation in both directions? Like the person sure. who, like, oh, I don't want to call myself that. Or the other person is like, yeah, I don't like those people. Right. A hundred percent. There are people who feel that they are being described as Christian nationalists when really all they're saying is, I don't want government to interfere too much in my life. I want to live in a moral society. And why are you dismissing me like that? Mm. And there are others who, when they see someone who speaks in those terms, who talks about taking America back for God, for example, assumes that they have a collection of assault weapons and bulletproof vests at home and they're preparing <laughs> for the apocalypse, right? And so, yes, in both directions, it shuts down conversation. Oh, uh, yeah. The willingness to use violence is like, you know, there's always the few bad apples that get attention on the news that make the rest sure. of us look bad kind of thing, right? Like there's always, uh -huh. and that stereotype, it does exist for a reason. And there are people who are willing to use violence or sort of, it's an increasing option for a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah. not like they would pick up arms, but be like, yeah, but I, I know I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be against this. But you know what? If this happens, yeah, I'll let them fight the government. Right. Exactly. Yep. And that's one of the things that I would hope that the Anabaptist movement, the Mennonites have to contribute to the conversation is that the Anabaptist movement is coming up on its 500th anniversary, sort of a recognition of the first adult baptism that took place in Western Europe during the Reformation. So it's coming up on 500 years. It's got a rich and varied history and a lot of complexity to it. You know, <laughs> I live in Lancaster County, so I say the term Mennonite and I have to sometimes explain like I don't mean horse and buggy, like that's part of the Mennonite <laughs> family, but it's not my like branch of the Mennonite family, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the consistent or what has been historically consistent, what I think is maybe under threat a little bit right now, the consistent has been a repudiation of violence, of recognizing that if we are going to claim to be followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to completely forswear violence. 
we have to say that no matter what happens in this world, we don't believe we can solve any problems through acting violently toward other human beings. Hi, everyone. This is Jacob Daniel Winograd. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, The Biblical Anarchy Podcast, where we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man by instead seeking the kingdom of God, where we unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like you're hearing on this episode right now. Okay, I'll let you get back to it. Then you can check out the Biblical Anarchy podcast. There are a lot of people out there who don't think Christian nationalism is actually a thing. Rich Lowry, he's from National Review, and in a personal correspondence I had with him, he was like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that. We were kind of planning for things huh. actually at Freedom Fest. And he's like, I don't really think Christian nationalism is really a movement to be considered. And I'm like, I don't understand how you even say that. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is this really even a thing? Because some people don't even think it's just like, oh, well, they're just a bunch of Christians who want to be nationalists and it's not a really rising movement. How do we know whether or not this is actually a thing? The Christian part, that is. Oh, man, that's such a great question, Doug. And I'm glad that you're asking it. I don't know that I have the answer. I think of it, maybe you might see some corollaries in kind of the language around Antifa, right? Like, is that a thing that exists? Mm, yeah, yeah, historically, okay. there have been anti-fascist movements, and some of them have been loosely organized, and sometimes some of those members have been willing to engage in street violence. Is it this, like, big overarching boogeyman? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Christian nationalism, in some ways, we're using language to describe something that is not new, right? Like, the moral majority has been there. That has been part of American history, recent American history. So clearly there is something there. But I very much understand for someone like Lowry, you have this platform and this position, you don't necessarily want to shine that really bright spotlight on something that isn't a big deal. Mm. But where I struggle is I don't know where that tips into denying reality, right? Because things that historically would have been fringe and not worthy of attention seem to be creeping toward the mainstream. And so figuring out what an appropriate response is there is really challenging. We won't probably tip our conversation in that direction, but this also gets into that conversation of what is it that's being covered in the media and being sure. thrown out there in our faces is actually, I want to say actually what's going on because that sounds a little conspiratorial, but like I would suggest that perhaps Rich Lowry thinks that the media is making a bigger deal out of Christian nationalism and it really shouldn't be. In other words, they're kind of making this up to make people more afraid and become a boogeyman because the right is making wokeism the boogeyman. Yes. So they're fighting back with like, well, now we've got these fascists and they run hit pieces on people who believe in Christian nationalism and they dig up things that they espouse. And some of these things are actually true, but it's like, is that person, is that figure really gaining a lot of traction? Well, no, only because you're shining light on it. Yes, 100%. And one of the questions that came up in this, so our structure at our church was we had three sessions, and the first one was kind of an introduction, orientation, trying to define terms a little bit better. The second session was engaging with Scripture, trying to understand how would Scripture inform our response to this. And then the third was just questions, just sort of an open question and response kind of time. And one of the first questions was, why is this called Christian? And it's a really interesting thing to think about. In some ways, part of my response was, in some ways, it's functioning as a more socially acceptable surrogate for white. Like, we can't deny that there are some racial elements 
at play in this that are also hard to talk about. But I also think in some ways that it's called Christian because it makes Christians look bad. Again, I don't want to be mm. conspiratorial, but I think it's a reality that people of sincere faith are underrepresented in halls of power and in media institutions. And so when you have this close linkage together of these two terms, Christian nationalist, it does something to our understanding of Christian. So I do think that is part of the subtext. Again, it's not the main thing, but I think it is part of the subtext of what's going on here. So in identifying the kinds of Christian nationalism that exist out there as manifestations of, you know, there's the white supremacy, we need to be a Christian nation of white people, extremist side of things versus the yeah. like the guy who just gets a little weepy eyed on 4th of July when he hears the national right. anthem or something, right? Yeah. Like there's yeah. that whole gamut. And you've come up with a taxonomy that you shared with your church that I really like because I think it faithfully represents and memorably represents as well how we can actually break this down a little bit and back up and not overreact. Yeah. So as I was preparing for this, and again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm a pastor. My specializations are sort of in biblical interpretation and worship and things like that. I'm not an expert in this, but I'm fascinated by it. And I've done a fair amount of reading and study, but I was trying to figure out what is the best way to bring other people into this conversation who might not listen to podcasts like this one or who don't spend their spare time reading blog posts about this kind of stuff and don't get politically oriented newsletters blasted to their email everywhere. How do you bring people into this conversation? And the danger that I recognized is that it would be really easy for me as a presenter to skew towards sensationalism, right? Like to find the craziest person out there and to say, this is a Christian nationalist, be afraid. And I really didn't want to do that. So yeah, so I landed on this taxonomy that was kind of actually inspired by Coca-Cola, where I said, maybe we have what we could think of as classic Christian nationalism. And then maybe there's like a diet Christian nationalism that's got all the sugar removed and it's supposed to be a lot safer and healthier for you. <laughs> but then there is an original recipe that's made with cocaine. <laughs> you sort of run this gamut. And the examples I pointed to for this sort of classic Christian nationalism, there was a recent clip that sort of circulated around the internet of the worship leader and former congressional candidate Sean Foyt preaching in a congregation and talking about Christian nationalism. He talks about how he's accused of being a Christian nationalist, and he just wholeheartedly in this clip embraces the term. He's like, yes, yes, I'm a Christian nationalist. Yes, I want to see Christians in political power. I want to see Christians making the laws. I want to see this be a Christian nation. And he ties it to discipleship. He says, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I said, that is the classic example of this, right? Like that Christians should have unique and specific privileges within society. They should occupy positions of power. They should write the laws and they should enforce a particular moral vision that they draw from their biblical interpretation on society. Then I said, there's a diet version of this. It's very similar, right? It would say, yes, Christians should make laws. Laws are moral documents. Government budgets are moral documents, and they should be informed by Christian morality. But it's made more of a piece with pluralism, right? It recognizes that not everyone in this society is going to be Christian. It sort of affirms the repudiation of religious tests that come from the founding documents. I think it's still fair to call it Christian nationalism, but it's very different from what Sean Foyt is advocating mm -hmm. for yeah. because it's not exclusive. But then there is this fringe, I think we can still say it's fringe, movement that is quicker to resort to violence, that has much closer ties to white supremacy. And the example I used here was just this absolute bonkers bananas thing that happened with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West and Alex Jones. Right? Like there is very much a part of me that would want to say that is fringe, that's extreme, and it's not worth paying attention to. 
But the reason that Nick Fuentes made it on Alex Jones's show with Kanye is because they had dinner with a former and perhaps future president of the United States. So this thing that is fringe seems to be creeping into the mainstream mm. in ways that are perhaps a little concerning. And I would say, well, I have this sort of taxonomy that helps me sort of organize and make sense of this. When you're just sort of out in the wild, these things are not well labeled. And so someone may think, oh, this is just like, we're going to play the national anthem in church on the 4th of July weekend and think it's entirely safe. And then all of a sudden, like, they're parroting Nick Fuentes talking points, right? Like these are not, yeah. like, there's this blurring of lines that's happening. Yeah, and that's where right. I maybe disagree with Lowry a little bit and say, this is worth paying attention to because of that blurriness. Yeah, well, if I can add to your taxonomy a little bit, not a new word, but understanding the diet part. Yeah. You and I are old enough to know that eggs have been healthy, then unhealthy, then healthy, then unhealthy, and then healthy again, <laughs> yeah, right? right? And so exactly. we, we kind of, yeah. And so just like, you know, I don't know what ingredients they're putting into the diet to take out the sugar, but I think about this and I think, well, if I had to sip any of these <laughs> Christian nationalism, it would certainly be diet. But eventually I'm going to learn in 20 years that whatever it was, you know, did something to my memory or did something, did yes, something bad right? to my body. Right. And so it's still all probably not healthy in one sense. What sort of definition did you kind of work with for your congregation? Because obviously, if we're talking about something, you kind of have to be like, okay, well, this is approximating a definition so that we can have yeah. a fruitful conversation. Yeah. So what I offered to the congregation, and I said, this is a working definition. You can critique it, disagree with it. That's fine. This is just sort of my working definition is that Christian nationalism is the belief that Christian faith is central to American identity. Therefore, public policy should be shaped, and we might say exclusively shaped, and this is sort of the determinant between like classic or diet, yep, yep. should be shaped or exclusively shaped by Christian leaders' interpretation of biblical ideals. And I would say that for both classic and diet Christian nationalism, that is the definition. It's about the role of Christianity in American identity. And what follows logically then is that Christians should continue to shape public policy. Where you sort of skew into this version that is made with cocaine is the, the idea that people should use any means necessary to control state power. And that's where you get into the conversation about violence, the legitimacy of elections, whether or not, I mean, part of the conversation that's happening around all this is, does democracy actually work anymore, right? And that's not mm. relegated just to the right, right? Like progressives are asking that question too. So that I think is where you get into what I would see as the most concerning. But like you, I'm in the Anabaptist tradition, which has this historic skepticism of state power and a very strong teaching that the church needs to define itself outside of state power. So I would see all of these as problematic, but yeah. only the most extreme version as particularly dangerous. That actually segues to my next question, which is the phrase, take America back for God is a very sort of, I don't want to call it entirely Southern, but like a conservative religious right sort of rhetoric, right? We need to take America back for God. And it's very similar to make America great again. That's sort of a secular <laughs> version of take right. America back for God, right? Uh huh. Yeah. But the more thoughtful, maybe even more biblically astute Christian pastor, leader might take Jesus's admonition to make disciples of all nations as a different nonviolent way of achieving what would be called Christian nationalism. I know Stephen Wolf is very much in this line of thinking, Andrew Torba, some of the thinkers that are mostly, I would say, probably theonomists, is to say, oh, we need to make disciples of all nations. And there's this little bit of me that's like, Okay, so let's say that we are just adamant about preaching the gospel. We do it in a faithful way to what Jesus 
envisioned for his disciples to do. And we win and win and win and win and win a lot of people's hearts, right? Yeah. Well, that's going to transform society. It's going to transform the people who are in government. And so, right. is that all they want? Because it seems like their little Mott and Bailey approach is more like, oh, hey, all we want is for Christian laws to be dominant. We're not going to put Muslims in jail or we're not going to lock up this or that person. But anytime you hear all we want is, it's kind of like a little bit of a signal yeah. that, well, no, you're just trying to sell it to me softer. So anyway, the make disciples of all nations, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that phrase as a sort of more acceptable or biblical term for yeah, so, Christian nationalism. So one of the things I engaged with as I was preparing for this series at church was someone I think from Oklahoma, his name's escaping me, but he has a, I think it's a book out called something like Christian nationalism is inevitable. And here's why that's a good thing. That is a hundred percent his argument, right? Like the church in evangelism will succeed in making disciples of all nations and therefore all nations will become Christian. Now to him, it's very important that the nations remain separated based on their ethnicity, which I would say is very bad biblical interpretation, <laughs> but I am sympathetic, at least in, in sort of the broad strokes outline that yes, Christianity should be expanding right? Like people should be coming to know Jesus. And that has implications, societal implications. Where I would strongly differ, I think, with folks like Stephen Wolf, and I haven't engaged as in-depth with his work as maybe I should, but where I would strongly differ is for me, part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to abandon and forsake any attempt at compelling, coercing, controlling other human beings. And so that redefinition or reworking of power oriented around Jesus' teaching and also his example on the cross means that a Christian nation in the sort of nation-state model is an oxymoron. Like there can be no such thing as a Christian way to compel other people, to coerce other people, to force other people, right? Like if the state, if Weber is correct, that the state is the thing that claims the monopoly on legitimate violence, mm -hmm. right? Like if that's an accurate definition of what the state is, then the state can never be Christianized because there's no such thing as Christian violence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's literally the argument that we make here. And I mean, we've done a handful of episodes already in our podcast network. And that's kind of the thing we say is like, you can't do that. Like as soon as a, I've used this analogy before. I know that a lot of people on the left, like the Jim Wallace sojourners mentality sure. of the left, and even the sort of theonomist dominionists on the, I guess you could call them the right, if we're doing left and right, but they have this thing of like, Jesus is Lord overall, and that includes governance and government. Right. And I'm like, okay, great. But when a pimp gets saved, he doesn't become a Christian pimp. <laughs> he ceases yeah. to be a pimp, right? <laughs> and so, and this is, a, this is the difference between civil governance and the state, right? So a state can't be a Christian state. You can have governance that reflects biblical values and so forth. But even that, depending on the structure and depending on the legitimacy of it, it may not actually be, it might still qualify as your oxymoron, not actually Christian. Right. And again, I think part of the counter argument then would be, well, what about the centurions, right? Like there's no, as a mm. pacifist Christian, I get to talk an awful lot about Romans 13 and the centurions. <laughs> like I remember I was in, I wasn't a pastor yet, but I was attending a Mennonite church and they were doing a series on like Mennonite convictions and beliefs. And they got to the article about non-resistance, non-violence, pacifism. And I looked over at the sound tech who had grown up Mennonite, but was kind of drifting into 
mainstream evangelicalism. And he just had his Bible open with this white knuckle grip to Romans 13. Like he was just like holding on for dear life. Like this can't, like Jesus can't possibly have meant what he said about violence because Romans 13. And so I, I'm very familiar with the counter argument. And I do acknowledge that perhaps my absolutism is a bit excessive. I'm open to that critique. However, I think there is a consistent witness, not just in the New Testament, but in the first 300 years of Christian history, a consistent witness that says part of what it means to be Christian is to distance yourself from the state and to completely abandon the exercise of violence. Ron Sider has a phenomenal book that he wrote just a few years before he passed away called The Early Church on Killing mm-hmm. that looks just comprehensively at all of the extant texts around military service, war, policing, to the extent that it existed in the ancient Roman world, separate from military service, euthanasia, abortion, and the death penalty. And he takes into account the counter arguments, right? Like they are there, but they are very much a minority voice. The overall dominant perspective of the first 300 years of church history is that as followers of Jesus, we do not take human life. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're at least to me, you're preaching to the choir and to <laughs> us, but I, I think it's really important to be reminded of that early history. And by the way, we actually interviewed I interviewed Ron Sider. It wasn't about that book. I remember seeing that that book had come out. And by the time I got around to investigating, asking him to come on again, he had passed away. So, yeah. But no, I have had him on. We've, we had a good conversation. And of course, you're probably, I would say at least the 10th, if not maybe the 15th or 20th Anabaptist I've had on this show, because there is so much overlap with the nonviolence, skepticism of government, that kind of thing. And also the idea that Electoral politics isn't the primary way we engage, but it doesn't mean we don't engage the culture and it doesn't mean we don't engage society. Right. Yeah. And there is very much some tension and complexity around that, right? Like we're two white guys, I presume kind of middle-class white guys. Like this system is working really well for us in a lot of ways, even though we would certainly have our critiques of it. I very rarely feel that the government poses an existential threat to me, whereas I know that is not true for all people. And so Mm -hmm. there is this tension that I feel what is my responsibility as someone who's relatively privileged by this system? What is my responsibility to those who are not? But I still can't get to the point of saying, well, then the right thing to do is just to seize control of that brutalistic mechanism and make it do what I want it to do. But that is very much a challenge in my stream of the Mennonite church. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times shortly before the November 22 election about Doug Mastriano, his campaign. Mm Mm-hmm. And the connection of like Amish and Mennonite groups who seem to be coming out to support him. But the author, Bonnie Christian, had actually attended a Mennonite Church USA congregation. And she just very briefly comments on the fact that she recognized that some of her fellow congregants were very, very quick to engage the political process and see a, even a vision of sort of salvation coming from politics just from a progressive standpoint. And so it's not something that's unique just to political conservatives. But certainly the forces are not equal within the American church as a whole right now. But I am concerned about all dimensions that we sort of substitute our loyalty to Jesus to a loyalty to a certain political vision. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes, and now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner 
and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. How did you wrap up the series with any sort of like pastoral remarks or encouragement? I think the question here is more along the lines of like, how do we live faithfully as Christians in society without, without I want to say drinking the Kool-Aid, but now it's drinking the Coca-Cola. Yeah, right. Yes, it's without drinking the Coca-Cola is the question. Well, first of all, I think one of the questions that we need to ask is, how big of a problem is this? And is this our problem to solve? And then I offered a couple cautions. I said, first and foremost, that I don't believe there's any way to, if we say that the sort of right-wing Christian nationalism is a danger to the well-being of humanity, one of the things we can't do as followers of Jesus is fight our way out of this. It is really hard because the language, the rhetoric, the imagery all kind of activates that fight mechanism within us. And that's, I think, by design, right? Like there's a, a, des a desired attempt to provoke a fight. And as followers of Jesus, and my conviction is that as followers of Jesus, we should not take that bait. You know, mm -hmm. We should not attempt to fight fire with fire to fight our way out of this. But I also caution that we can't hate our way out of this. One of the illustrations I used when talking about the extent to which this is a problem was one of Tucker Carlson's texts that came out in the Dominion lawsuit. I don't love like reading other people's texts that weren't like, like I felt a little weird about it, but it felt important enough to sort of acknowledge the difference between the public persona and what he was actually saying. And he talked about watching videotape of a street fight in DC and feeling this desire within himself that what he called the Antifa punk kid be beaten to death. Like he wanted to watch this kid die in this fight. And he recognized, thankfully, recognized within himself that this was wrong and dangerous. But to me, it just illustrates how utterly corrosive this can become when we define people primarily by whether or not they are our political allies or political enemies. It is a very short hop, skip and a jump to hating those people we see as political enemies. And so as followers of Jesus, I think we need to be really, really cautious about that corrosive influence. I also offered some generalized cautions around voting. I know this is a complicated issue and very much disagreeable. And I personally am a hypocrite in this regard. Like I, as I acknowledge to this class, I am a sucker for the rhetoric of like the most important election of our lifetime. Like, <laughs> even though my sort of convictions would, I would aspire to full non-participation. I find myself every two or four years getting sucked into it because I care about who has the nuclear codes, right? <laughs> but 
Whether we choose to vote or not vote, I don't think is the most important question. It's a question worth asking, but it's what's the value that we put on that? Do we see that as the extent to which our responsibility ends? And do we think that salvation can come from our voting? So I said, we can't fight, we can't hate, we can't vote our way out. But some important things that maybe we can do as followers of Jesus is that we can listen. I think some of what animates some of these folks who are attracted toward the more extreme versions of Christian nationalism, some of what animates them are legitimate concerns about their personal well-being, the well-being of their families and their communities. And part of the gift that we have, I think, as followers of Jesus is a capacity to listen even across difference. And out of that listening, I would hope that we can continue to love people. I know that that can be this like abstract, squishy concept, but can we continue to love people even when we perceive that there is some danger that they might pose? I mean, this is primary within the gospel, right? That while we were yet sinners, right? While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And that isn't just something Christ does for us. It's something God continues to desire to do through us, that even when people are perceived as our enemies, we will persist in loving them. And then I talked about service. This is just a classic Anabaptist thing. We are very good historically at showing up when something has gone wrong and helping get people food and water and shelter. And I said, let's continue that. Let's not just presume that we can delegate all of that authority to civil society, but still engage as human beings going directly and connecting where there's need and serving those around us. I don't think there's any further questions I have because I think that really wraps up the conversation. Although there's a lot of things we could talk about and rabbit trails to go down, but those words, John, I think are very helpful and encouraging and also challenging at the same time. They're not just kind of like, oh, okay, you can feel good about not being a Christian nationalist <laughs> or <laughs> right. whatever, but it does take that energy and effort to love your enemy because that can be sacrificial as we know. Yeah. Well, hey, this has been a great conversation, Doug. I appreciate the work that you're doing. <laughs> I'll just confess personally, the libertarian kind of brand is maybe a bit tarnished in my mind because of how it's been portrayed <laughs> in yeah. kind of the mainstream media and some of the fringy folks it's historically attracted, but... but <laughs> I think the same is true of Christian and evangelical, right? And so I don't know that evangelical is salvageable, but I 100% believe that Christian is. And so I'm willing to do the work to say that this legacy we have as Christians is worth standing up for, not, not violently and not even necessarily politically, but demonstrating to the world, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So yeah, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.